You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. If you're visiting with us, we are concluding this morning a three-part series on the topic of money uh, called In God We Trust. And I want to give you a warning right at the beginning of this sermon that it does contain uh, a few flashbacks. I say that because I uh, really don't like flashbacks. Anytime there's a movie or a television show that goes back into the past, my wife hears an audible groan, and I just lose all interest in whatever I'm watching. So if I, with apologies if you're like me in this sermon. But I guess I've been thinking recently about It's a Wonderful Life. You know, I, I don't know if it's a Taproot Theater's got it playing. I'm hoping to go uh, see that, or it's just a season, you know. It's a story that's got flashbacks in it. We see... Uh, this uh, man, George Bailey, about to throw his life away. He's on this bridge, right? And an angel, Clarence, comes uh, alongside of him, this kind of clumsy, angelic being. And George Bailey thinks that his life has been a failure because he is $8,000 in debt. And he thinks he's better off dead because uh, he's got a $15,000 life insurance policy, but he just doesn't get it. And it it takes this friendly angel, Clarence, to come alongside of George Bailey and take him on a journey through these flashbacks to show him just the impact that his living has made on the people around him. How great history has changed because George Bailey has lived his life through simple acts of generosity and how they have added up. In, In the same way, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, which I would say is a church that's a troubled church that stands very much like George Bailey, just on the brink, tottering over the waters, because this church has missed the good news of Jesus Christ at work in its midst. And so the Apostle Paul comes alongside and says, let me give you some flashbacks. Let me just show you what is happening in the midst of you, give you a fresh vision. And so he does in, uh, throughout the whole book, but today we look at uh, chapters 8 and 9. These chapters belong together. They all deal with the topic of money. You think, wow, I, you know, I would have expected him to deal with doctrine or ethics. But isn't it interesting how much of both of those things can be discovered simply by reading the ledger of a checkbook? It, it, money is not so important to God, but it's important to us. And so God cares about it because he wants our hearts. And so the Apostle Paul says, let me talk to you about your money in these two chapters. What Paul is doing is he is raising funds for a collection for the saints who are in Jerusalem, back in Israel. We read in Acts chapter 11 and chapter 12 that things are not going very well for the followers of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, has been killed, martyred. Uh, Peter has been imprisoned. And a prophet by the name of Agabus has just said, there's going to be a famine. And now that famine has arrived. And the church is impoverished, frightened, and hungry. And so the Apostle Paul is making this great sweep, this tour across the Mediterranean, around the Mediterranean basin, gathering funds to supply the needs of those who are in Jerusalem. And it's to this that Paul now uh, directs his attention in chapters 8 and 9. He calls the Corinthians to what Paul will describe as a ministry of grace, 
a ministry of grace. So I'd like to ask you to open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We won't take time to read the whole chapter uh, together, uh, but let's look specifically at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. You'll find that on page 942 of the Pew Bible. And let's stand and read together 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you think it might be true, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Paul asks the Corinthians, and I think invites us, to get a vision of our future in this passage. And I want to discuss with you what that vision begins to look like in three aspects. First, the quantity. Next, the motivation. And then finally, the result of our giving. The quantity, the motivation... And the result of our giving. So first, let's begin with the quantity. How much does God want us to give? How much? Well, Paul begins this text in verse 6 with this point. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He doesn't give them a number, but he gives them a principle that comes out of farming. It's an agricultural Image. It's the sowing of seed. Now, I ask myself, why would a farmer sow sparingly? You know, why not just throw all the seed out there that you've got? And I think the reason is that seed for a farmer is your liquid asset. You, you know, it keeps. You, you can sow it later. And, and so to sow it all out there involves a kind of a risk because who knows what the future will bring? There could be a frost. There could be a famine. 
There could be marauding bands of warriors that come just as the harvest arrives. I may be sick or called away and will not be able to gather in the fruit of the harvest. And so maybe I will keep a little bit behind. I withhold some of the seed as a hedge against adversity. I won't sow it all. And so immediately we see the principle that Paul gives relates to the quantity of our giving. It is that we should give more than we know we can afford to give. Give more than we know that we can afford to give. If Paul knows that you and I oftentimes want to give out of certainty, we want to give the surplus. But he says, if you do that, you give so sparingly. It's like the Irish proverb that says, the less you bet, the more you lose when you win. See, he's saying, just throw the seed out there generously. Put yourself all in. Invest yourself 100% in this harvest because the more that you sow, the more that you will reap. Let's go on a flashback. Back in the days of Israel, Israel was very agricultural. And this image, I think, to Jews in Corinth, there was a synagogue in Corinth, would immediately call to mind the history of the people of God. In Israel, the practice of giving was defined by tithing and bringing grain and fruit and produce to the temple. Would you open up and hold a finger here in 2 Corinthians 9? I think it's going to be easier to follow the sermon if you hold your Bible open. But let's also go back to Deuteronomy 26. Turn back Deuteronomy 26, uh, verses 1 through 11. We're going to look at this uh, several times, so, so mark this text as well. But here you have Moses, Moshe, the great prophet of Israel, giving Deuteronomy a set of sermons on the verge of the entrance into the promised land. The second giving of the law, the reiteration, that's what Deuteronomy means. And he stands before the people of God and he says, now, here's what's going to happen when we go in. Look at the first few verses, Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 and 2. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it, settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling For his name. This is about tithing. Moses will address tithing just after this passage. Uh, And what he's saying is, when you get into Israel, God is going to determine a place for his name. And what is that place? It'll ultimately be Jerusalem. And, And ultimately, specifically, it's the temple where God's name will rest in the heart of his people. His name is that representation of his core essence, his inner being. It's that place where God is most uh, clearly displayed in the glory of this temple. It's where God's present. Where we see the goodness that lies behind all of creation in this temple. When When you are in that place and God blesses you and you have a harvest, you take the first of those fruits... You put them in a basket and you bring them to the temple in Jerusalem. You bring them to the Levites. And there are two purposes. Those gifts will be used for ministry. It's the work of the Levites, the ministers, and uh, the relief of the poor. Care for them. 
But notice, as they do that, that there is the same dynamic that the farmer in Corinth would have experienced. You see, you and I might think, well, a tithe, that's easy. You know, you just take your income for the year, you divide by 10, put that in a basket, and you give it. But no, the law says you give the first of the fruits. That is the very beginning of the harvest. Tim Keller points out that the farmer doesn't really know how much more harvest is coming. He's asked by faith to give more than he knows he can afford. Right there at the beginning, it's coming up and he says, I don't really know how big this crop is going to be. I don't know how much fruit. I don't know what the weather conditions will be like, but I've got to anticipate in advance and give very intentionally more than I think I can afford as a statement of faith. Now, of course, when you give this way, it's going to change your life. It's going to necessarily have an impact on the way that you uh, live your life. Because circumstances will change. Sometimes the crop will be larger. Sometimes it will be smaller. And so often we want to give just the surplus, just what's left over. We look into our wallets and we see what's there. That's not the biblical principle of first fruits. And so Paul will say in Second uh, Corinthians 8, verse 3, he says the Macedonians, they gave according to their means, but also beyond their means. They didn't give foolishly, like putting it on a credit card with money that they don't even have. They give according to their means, but then beyond their means. This is giving that cuts into their lifestyle so that they demonstrate with their life the generosity, of even beyond the giving that they give. When we give this way, our giving will be intentional. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, a year earlier, as he prepares them for this offering, set aside every week on the Sabbath, the first of, uh, of day of the week, as you worship together, that amount out of your income that you want. To, don't wait until the end and gather it all up. Be intentional about it. This will simplify our lives. This will force us to depend, as the farmer must depend on God, for the remainder of the, of, of the harvest. The fruitfulness of the seed that has been sown. And it will call us to prayer. So that's the quantity that God calls to give. More than we know we can afford to give. Secondly, let's look at the motivation. Let me ask the question, why would anybody want to give this way? What would possibly motivate someone to give more than they know they can afford? Seems foolish. What would possibly motivate somebody to give uh, in such a way that it would limit their lifestyle? Uh... Why? Well, apparently, it's a good question that many of us are asking. Uh, in 2008, a study was published under the title Passing the Plate by Smith and Emerson of Notre Dame and Rice Universities, in which they showed that American Protestants are now giving 1.8% of their after-tax income. So apparently, a lot of us are lacking the motivation. We're really not sure why you would give in this kind of a, a way. Apparently, the IRS received an envelope that had five $100 bills in it. And there was a little note. And it said, you know what? I have not been paying my taxes, and I feel so guilty about it that I'm not sleeping at night. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> Let's be honest. You know, there are a lot of reasons that we give. We do give, but we give for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's out of guilt. Sometimes it's out of peer pressure. Well, everybody else is giving. Sometimes it's a desire for status or to control, to influence an organization. Many different reasons that we give. But Paul says there is only one reason I want the people of God to give. It's at verse 7 of chapter 9. It's at the very next verse. He says, Each of you must give as you have made up your mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And, and here's, here's the George Hinman revised standard uh, translation here, verse 7. Paul says, let each give as they have decided beforehand in their heart. In their heart. Paul says, don't determine your giving by your wallet, your bank account. He says, determine it by your heart. He puts his finger right there. Now, what does that mean? What do we find in our hearts? Three flashbacks, with apologies. First of all, Macedonia, a recent flashback. Macedonia is northern Greece. It's where the Church of Philippi is. Corinth is in southern Greece. It's right there on the isthmus between Achaia, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and northern Greece. Paul is writing from Macedonia as he sends this letter down to Corinth. Now, the Corinthian church is a very wealthy church. Corinth has two ports, controls trade north and south along the isthmus, and east and west across the isthmus. They have Corinthian, not leather, but bronze, they're famous for, and it's a wealthy church. This is not the case for the church in Macedonia, where Paul now sits as he writes this letter. In verse 2 of uh, chapter 8, Paul says, these Christians are giving in the context of a severe ordeal of affliction, likely persecution. Things are not going well. They're poor. And yet, listen to what Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 8. He says, I can attest to you they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. Paul's just, you know, he's kind of functioning as a fundraiser now. He's going around to these different churches, many of which he fathered spiritually. And he comes to this church now in Macedonia that's just poor, in crisis. And, you know, if, if I were Paul, I would think, oh, this is just irresponsible to ask them to give. I can't do it. You know, they just have too many needs of their own. And, and, and yet this church says, oh, please, please let us give. Please let us be a part of this offering to the saints in Jerusalem. We have to. You have to. And Paul says, wow. That's the first flashback. There's something going on in the hearts of the Macedonians. The second flashback goes way back, back to Deuteronomy 26 again, ancient Israel. And I want to read to you the next few verses that describe a story that every Israelite was supposed to tell when they came with their offering. You remember the basket that the first fruits contain? You're, you're supposed to bring it to the temple. But Moses says, no, 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 no. You don't just bring it quietly. You've got to tell a story. There's a little script. There's a dramatic piece that comes along with your offering. Wouldn't it be interesting if, as we pass the plate through the church, you have to stop and tell a little story. You have to give a testimony. And that's what Moses says. Look here, uh, Deuteronomy 26, uh, verse 3. It says, um, You shall go to the priest who is in the office at the time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I've come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give to us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sits it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. And here's the story. Quote, a wandering Aramean was my ancestor. That's Abraham. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord the God of our ancestors. And the Lord heard our voice, saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
So now I bring the first of the fruits of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. And then you set it down. So I tell a story. There's a testimony. Something in your heart. Each of us has a personal experience of redemption behind our giving. That's what's motivating us. So we get a little insight into that flashback. And then the third flashback here. Most powerful, the greatest of all visions is the vision of Jesus Christ that we see on this table. For in verse 8 of chapter 8, Paul says, I do not say this as a command. In verse 9, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see what he's saying? He's saying, will you look at the death of Jesus Christ? It's interesting that the Apostle Paul can see the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in financial terms. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, Jesus was rich, but for you he became poor, and now you're rich. See, economic implications of this table. This table, friends, is a negotiating table. Paul has already said in chapter 5, verse 21, that God uh, made him who knew no sin become sin for us so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. See, it's a negotiating table. Jesus is saying to us here, you bring me your sin. You bring me your poverty. You bring me the brokenness of your life. And I will take it and I will give to you my righteousness, my vindication before the Lord. All that comes from living a perfectly holy life, I'm just going to give it to you so that there is now no condemnation for, for you who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free. That's a story that lies behind the offering. That's the story that runs through the heart of a cheerful giver, as Paul says. He doesn't put any pressure on the Corinthians. We don't tell you how much to give at this church. That's between you and the Lord. And Paul say, I'm not going to put any pressure on your will and make you feel any obligation or sense of duty to give. I'm not going to put any pressure on your emotions and try to whip up an emotional state of empathy for those people by telling you stories of everything that's going wrong in Jerusalem. The only place I want you to look is deep into your heart the work of Jesus Christ. Do you see his riches in your life? It's his grace. So Paul will call it a ministry of grace. These two chapters begin with the word grace and they end with the word grace, though it's translated thanks in our text. If you look at the footnotes, you can see ten times the word grace is used over and over and over. You think he wants us to get a message. Giving is a response and a participation in the ministry of Jesus Christ's grace. It's the only motivation Forgiving. Well, you, you might say, what about tithing? Some of you who have been members of this church know that this facility is built on the tithing of its members. David Cowie, the pastor, came in and with a tithing campaign, he encouraged the elders to uh, set an example by tithing, and the congregation joined in. And we benefit from their generosity. Is there anything wrong with tithing? Well, first of all, no. But you need to know that the New Testament does not command followers of Jesus Christ to tithe. Uh, anywhere. 
And even though Paul draws on the theology of tithing as he refers to Deuteronomy in this text, he is very careful not to encourage tithing or not to compel any sort of precise legal application of this principle into the lives of the Corinthians. Now, I do not want you to make an assumption from that or draw a conclusion that therefore the expectation is that the followers of Jesus Christ will give less than those who are under the law in the Old Covenant. I certainly don't think that implication will follow. We see several instances of people who do tithe uh, in the New Testament, who are not under the law. For example, uh, Abraham, he uh, meets a priest named Melchizedek after a great battle, and he tithes all of the battle spoils to Melchizedek just out of grace as a response to God's goodness. Uh, likewise, Jacob, he gets this vision of the, Jacob's ladder, you know, heaven and earth are joined. God is coming to heaven. Jacob is so uplifted by this vision. He says, well, everything that comes to me, I will give a tenth to God. It's before the law. It's just a response of grace. And then after the law, even in the ministry of Jesus Christ, think of Zacchaeus, this tax collector, and one day Jesus comes and visits him and we hardly get any explanation for all what motivates this. But Zacchaeus says, Lord, I am going to give to everybody I have defrauded anything fourfold restitution and half my income to the poor. And Jesus doesn't go, now, now, Zacchaeus, settle down, settle down. That's much too much. A tenth would be just fine. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver and he can see the heart of Zacchaeus, and he says instead, salvation has come to this house. This is the motivation for giving. It's an experience of grace. And we see here, as the text continues, that in verse 8, there's an overflow uh, in our experience of grace. In verse 8, it says, and God is able to provide or to overflow in your life every spiritual blessing and abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may Overflow, that's the Greek word there, in every good work. It says as Jesus is pouring his grace into our lives constantly, as we meditate on our riches in his poverty, we go out and share. We just have too much to contain. We overflow in other people's lives. Well, that's the motivation. The third thing to consider is the result. What happens when the followers of Jesus Christ give more than they know they can afford to give? And they give out of a motivation, a genuine experience of Jesus Christ's grace. What are the results? Well, this overflow continues to flow. In verse 12, we see this. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgiving to God. Now, why are these people thankful? I assume these are the people in Jerusalem. Are they thankful because now they have food on their table? Probably. Are they thankful now because the ministry of this generous community allows them to know Jesus Christ better? Probably. But I think there's something much more significant going on. I think there's so much more in the results of our giving as the followers of Jesus Christ. Paul only hints at but he does. He uses an interesting word in verse 12. He says, for the rendering of this ministry. The Greek word there is liturgia. This word had two different meanings in different contexts. The Greeks understood that meaning to be sort of a political word. It, like social action. Or volunteering for the community. 
It's what happens when the community gets together and does something good. Now, in the Hebrew tradition, this word is almost always used, not in that sense of what the community does. It's always used in the sense of what the priests and the Levites do in the temple. It's a word for ministry. It's what we do in that place where God has set his name, where he shows up. And so New Testament scholars actually debate, what did Paul mean? Did he mean, hey, see how many great things happen when Christians will collaborate together and pool their resources? Or did he mean, see what great things happen in terms of provoking worship when uh, people will give in this way? I personally think we don't have to make a choice. I think it's both. Look what happens back, uh, final flashback, Deuteronomy 26. After the first fruits have been gathered in these baskets, these stories have been told, then the result, Moses says, Then you, verse 11, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you in your house. See, the, the, the ministry of the Levites and the care for the poor causes celebration. People give thanks. But Paul is not sending these gifts to the temple. These gifts are gathered by the church, the followers of Jesus. They're pooled together, and it is their ministry and their care for the poor that provokes this celebration. Could it be that Paul is drawing on the, the, the implication he has described earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians, where he says of the Corinthians, you are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. So that as you share and give generously, as you demonstrate the grace of Jesus Christ, then God shows up. He reveals his name to the world. He makes it clear who he is and what his tensions are for the future of this planet. Both of these things. I think what clinches this is the allusion in this text to Isaiah 55. Verse 10 says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed. This is a quotation of Isaiah 55, in which God says, A day is coming when I make an everlasting covenant. A day is coming when I will reveal my glory in my people. And a day is coming when even the mountains and the hills will burst out into song and the trees of the earth will clap for joy. This is the great celebration. Paul is saying what's happening as we give is we are participating in the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the world is able to see through our generous giving what his life is all about. He's not encouraging them to have a pay-the-bills mentality. He's encouraging them to have a live-the-vision mentality. To know that my life makes a difference in the world. It changes history. Just like the ending of It's a Wonderful Life. And when George Bailey's brother Frank says he's the richest man in the world, it's not because of all the money they're pouring out on the table. It's because he has been able to see the difference that his life has made in the world. There's no temple. There's no Jesus Christ physically here anymore. It's us. This is God's plan for the transformation of this world. As we give generously, God will make it so, and the world will give thanks and will glorify God. People will long for you and pray for you, Paul says, in response to this out of joy. So give more than we can afford. Give out of our experience of grace and give with a vision of how God is changing the world in Jesus Christ. I want to close with just uh, two quick applications for you. One is we're going to be around tables, many of us, and celebrating Thanksgiving this Thursday. 
I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider how you want to give in the year ahead out of a response of thanksgiving and appreciating Jesus' grace. The second thing is I want to invite you to join us here on December 4th, a week from this Friday. Let me tell you what's happened. It's fascinating. Last spring, some of you were concerned about the impact of the recession on this city of Seattle, aware that homelessness, that hunger, and that even illness is increasing, and uh, there are fewer supports than ever. And the question, as you, you, you agreed to pray every two weeks, was what should UPC do about this? God has begun to answer this prayer, and people have uh, gathered into this conversation this month we gathered together in uh, Mount Rainier uh, Church with uh, 32 lay leaders of deacon teams at nine different churches in the city of Seattle to share best practices together and to pray together and say, how can we meet the needs of this city? And this coming uh, December 4th, we're going to gather in this room, led by our own gospel choir and the choirs of seven other churches, to worship together and then to take a free will offering For these deacon ministries, we're going to divide it evenly no matter how many people come. And we're going to put the money in the hands of the deacons of these churches to serve and meet the needs of those who are in trouble right now. I tell you when it's called In It Together. When Jesus Christ looks at this city, he does not see a church that is divided by race, ethnicity, by socioeconomics, or by theological tradition. He sees one body. And December 4th, we are going to gather as as much as we can of that one body in this place and celebrate him and serve him and own our city together with our financial resources. I want to encourage you to be involved. And maybe we can see with our own eyes the vision of those who will celebrate and give thanks. And we could say with Paul, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ and life in him. That we who are so poor have been made rich in him. Thank you for gathering us around this table again and again and again to remind us. Thank you for the privilege. We earnestly beg you for the privilege of being able to participate in this way with your work in the world. Thank you that your kingdom is coming and that you are using our own responses to your grace to signify that coming kingdom. May it be so. Ever give us faith. Ever give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.